science has only been going seriously for four or five hundred years, so it doesn't matter. The meaning must imply a mind. And then he told me he studied DNA. And I said, what's the origin of this long word, which is, has a semantic dimension because it codes for proteins? Oh, he said, chance and necessity. I said, but look, you've just told me that a five-letter word requires a mind. Why doesn't a, a 3.4 billion-letter word require a mind? Well, he'd no answer to that. And I think that's one of the important ways in which God has written into each of the 10 trillion or so cells of our bodies, this huge database that's screaming at us, in the beginning was the Word. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Practical Wisdom with me, Samuel Maruska. Today we're going to be talking about truth, about science, and faith. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined in this conversation by Professor John Lennox. John, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Hello. Hello. It's a delight to be with you as well. John Lennox is Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford and he is a renowned author and international speaker. He's debated Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens and many others. He's a very um, loved author. He's published God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Uh, a, a more recent book is Can Science Explain Everything? He's also written uh, Cosmic Chemistry 2084 and many other books. Um, John, I'd like to start talking about truth, this idea of truth. Now, uh, it's a very difficult concept to define. And um, we have this theory in, in our contemporary culture that there's only one way to truth, which is science. When you say God exists, there's no way you can verify that. So logical positivists say metaphysical propositions are nonsensical because you can't establish whether it's false or true. And then Karl Popper, who wasn't a positivist himself, um, came with this uh, falsifiable theory, which goes along the way that you need to prove, be able to prove that something can be falsified in order to show that it's correct. So, for example, if I say all swans are white, um, then there's only you, only, uh, you only need one example of a black swan to disprove my theory. So, my question to you, John, is what is truth? Well, you've made quite a number of assertions just now, and we need to tease them out just a little bit. What is, I think, mostly worth discussing is the dominant notion that science is the only way to truth, and we call that scientism. And it's a strange thing. I love logic, as obviously you do. And that, to my mind, is logically self-contradictory straight away, because the very statement science is the only way to truth is not a statement of science. So if it's true, it's false. So it's logically incoherent. Mm. And, and therefore, you're right in saying truth's hard to define, but so are all the interesting concepts in life. The really big things are hard to define. And my instinctive response to the question is, of course, to uh, talk about 
the usual criteria for truth, the two main lines of thinking there. And first of all, the idea that if a story is going to be true, it must be coherent within itself. And secondly, it must at some level cog into reality. Now, in your introduction, you made a statement that the idea that God exists is not verifiable. I would contradict that straight away. I think it is verifiable in the sense that you can adduce evidence for it. In other words, you can begin to put up a case that it corresponds to our experience of reality. And I would want to defend that, of course. I think there's another dimension to truth. Because from where I sit as a Christian, ultimately truth is a person. And since my teenage, I've been absolutely fascinated by one of the central claims that Jesus made. I am the truth. And I noticed very early on that his claim was not, I say the truth. Of course, that is true, but I am the truth. Now, if we step aside from that and we ask, what is the truth about this piece of matter? Well, we start examining it and we can give a list of the various materials of which it's made. Then we can go down, <coughs> what's the truth about those materials? Well, they consist of molecules. Well, what's the truth about the molecules? Well, they consist of atoms. Well, what's the truth about the atoms? Well, they consist of elementary particles. And what's the truth about those? And the question is, do, does the series of questions go back forever. I don't believe it does. I think at the end of every question series like this, the huge claim at the heart of Christianity is you find Christ standing and saying, I am the truth. Because ultimately, he is the cause for which all of this exists at all its different levels. So truth is a person. And I constantly emphasize to people that God is not a set of propositions. There are plenty of propositions about God. But God is personal. And so when you ask the question, what is truth? Then how do I get to know the truth about a person? Now, if I want to get to know you, Samuel, I could lay you on a sophisticated table and scan your brain and I could measure some of the electrical impulses, but I never get to know you. The only way I would get to know you is if you reveal yourself to me. Now, once you begin to reveal yourself to me, which would normally be in the first instance by your talk and your gestures and your demeanor, I can then apply criteria to that. Does it make sense? If you say, well, I actually come from the moon, um, <laughs> I would want to put that up against some kind of measurement. I think this is hugely important because getting to know a person means you have to reveal yourself. And the basic question, the basic God question to my mind is if there is a God, has he revealed himself? Now, the other big claim of the Christian faith is God has disclosed himself in uh, 
two major ways. One by speaking through his word, which we have written in the Bible, and at the deepest level, in Christ himself. So that there is a revelation so that we can get to know the truth about God, not by guessing, as the philosophers have been doing for years, and that's fine, I join them, I keep in philosophy, but by realizing there's another category that will yield truth. And it's not simply human ratiocination, human reason. It's God's revelation. The important thing there, and with that I'll stop because this has been a rather long answer. The important thing about reason is it's not in opposition to revelation. If you tell me about yourself, Samuel, I will use my reason on your revelation. But my reason unaided will not produce that revelation. And it's exactly the same with God. God has revealed himself in Christ and in Scripture. Mine reason doesn't produce that. It's a given. I'm a scientist. I study a given, the universe, with a given, my mind. They're both givens. Scientists are people that study givens with givens. The other thing that's in my orbit, so to speak, of as a source of information is God's revelation. But I use my reason to study it. You raised some very significant points uh, earlier. And I think it's, uh, it's amazing that actually truth isn't a concept, it's a person. And you also mentioned the, the correspondence theory of truth, which you, you seem to agree with. And also uh, you, you use the word category there. And I want to pick up on that. Um, there are many scientists and uh, people of influence, including actors, who seem to make a, a category mistake. Um, and they seem to make claims about um, God, for instance, um, that simply don't make sense or simply are simply uh, from a different category. Mm -hmm. uh, they argue for a point using a, a, a different category. So, for example, um, many people would ask you, well, who created God? But if you ask who created God, it already implies that God has a beginning. Uh, it already implies a certain understanding of the concept and of the, of the person of God. And also, many people would say, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in ancient deities or the Greek gods. Yes. And many people would, uh, would come to me and say, um, you seem to be a, a rational, reasonably rational person. Um, surely you can't believe in God. We don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. When, when people say that, I feel that there's a different category uh, that they put God and the, the, the idea of God into. And also you have um, uh, people like Stephen Hawking who make uh, similar claims um, outside of science. So how can Christians um, uh, engage with these types of arguments? Well, I'll tell you how I engage, and I think you're putting your finger at something immensely important, because that's often the main barrier that people put up. And if you can't get through that barrier, you don't get any further. I was doing uh, a kind of interview debate in the Netherlands some time ago, and a professor of physics was put up against me. And he said, your faith in God is like belief in Santa Claus, the one you mentioned. So I thought I would do a little experiment. And I 
said, let's just test this a little. I, I said to the audience, how many of you came to believe in Santa Claus as adults? And not a hand went up. And then they said, how many of you came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God as adults? So there were hundreds of hands. There were a couple of thousand people in the audience. And then I turned to this professor and I said, you know, I'm going to be very blunt with you. You're insulting this audience's intelligence because the finest of minds have spent centuries understanding or trying to understand the nature of God because they believe in his existence. There is not a similar group of intellectuals studying Santa Claus because we all know he doesn't exist. So you are making a fundamental category mistake. Now you mentioned Hawking, and I think he was, he was a brilliant mathematician, but he had very little knowledge of philosophy. And again, he placed God in the wrong category. I used to wonder why it was that, and this I found very helpful, and others I think I found it helpful, why it was that Hawking was so enthusiastic about saying to us all, you must choose between God and science. Now that to me is a category mistake for various reasons, but it was why that choice? And then I realized that he had problems in two separate directions. One was what is science as a category? But the second one was, he put God in the wrong category. He thought that I believed, people like me and you, believed in an ancient type of Greek God. That is, to use the common phrase, a God of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. So that advance in knowledge pushes God out. God is the God of the gaps. And suddenly it dawned on me, and it should have dawned on me years ago, that if you define God as a God of the gaps, then of course you have to choose between God and science because of your definition of God. And sometimes I say to people, you know the first statement in the Bible is, in the beginning God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. And that brings a smile. And I said, no, in the beginning God created heavens and earth. And that is a merism in technical grammatical language. He created everything, the bits we do understand, the bits we don't. But the interesting thing is that serious scientists who are believers in God, and there are many of them, their evidence for God coming from science doesn't come from the bits they don't understand, but the bits they do. Isaac Newton is a classic case. When he discovered, amongst other things, his law of gravity, and wrote his famous book, Principia Mathematica, which probably is the most famous book of science ever written. He didn't say, I now understand how it works. I've got a law of gravity. I don't need God. No, he said, what a wonderful God that did it this way. And he dedicated this book, hoping that people would read it and come to believe in a deity. So that's such a serious category mistake. And there's another one, which if you like, we can talk about, which is to do with the definition of science. But the first one that you mentioned, getting God in the wrong category. 
And as you started this, you talked about this absurd knockdown, which Richard Dawkins thought, which staggered me. I used to meet this argument in Russia, actually, when I first began to go there. Uh, who created God uh, and the argument that um, <clears throat> if you can say, well, I believe God created the universe, you must ask who created the creator and then it goes back forever and it's nonsense. I was amazed that Dawkins couldn't see through that, that as you say, you're placing God in the created category, but nobody believes, at least nobody sensible it's a believes, bit of a in a created argument. God. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, uh, if, if we are to look at it from this, th this way, I don't believe in the God that Dawkins doesn't believe either. That, and he didn't like that when I, I said it to him. But there is a philosophical point that lies at a slightly deeper level, Samuel, I think, and that's this. Do the arguments go back forever anyway? And I don't believe they do. Hmm. The atheist will stop asking the questions with mass energy or the most popular these days is nothing. Hmm. You have to redefine nothing to get there. The Christians like me or theists will stop with God. That's where it stops because God by definition, if he's worthy of the name, is eternal. And therefore, people that raise that question what I say to them, and this used to be very interesting in the Russian context, because there was a strong materialism, mm. is your problem that you cannot believe in anything eternal? And they would tell me they believe in the eternity, eternity of matter. And I'd say, oh, if you believe in the eternity of matter, then the eternal is conceivable. So I'm telling you that the only sensible kind of God to talk about is an eternal one. What about evidence? Uh, can we talk a bit about evidence? Of course. And um, what role does evidence play in establishing truth? I want to quote to you. Uh, you mention uh, uh, Richard Dawkins in your in your book God's Undertaker, and Richard Dawkins is saying next time that somebody tells you that something is true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And if they can't give you a good answer, I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. I wish he took it take his own advice <laughs> because um, when it came I actually asked him whether he had any friends he talked to about things like the evidence for the resurrection and he just shrugged it off. I think the number of very high profile atheists who aren't really interested in evidence beyond the narrow kind and it seems to me that you have to open up your mind to various levels of, of evidence when it comes to the God question because of the nature of science as a category of investigation. The idea that science can answer every question is false. And Sir Peter Medawar, he, he got it exactly right. He said it's obvious that science has its limits. It can't even answer the basic popper's questions, he called them, of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What's the meaning it of life? It can't answer the why question. It can't answer, well, the why question of purpose, the teleological question. It does have a why question it can answer, and that's the why of function. And sometimes, what is that bit doing here? Why is it there? That's a genuine scientific question, but not 
the why of purpose. And I often, I think this is hugely important, Samuel, actually. And I place a lot of evidence, uh, emphasis on it in my little book, Can Science Explain Everything? Because what many people don't realize is that science is even limited within itself. What I mean by that is this. When I was at school, I was badly taught physics. And I thought that the law of gravity explained gravity. And it wasn't until a number of years later that I realized that the law of gravity is a brilliant mathematical equation that enables one to do very precise calculations, good enough to land someone on the moon. But the one thing it doesn't do is tell you what gravity is. Just describes it. Yes, it just describes its effect. And Newton realized that. So it was limited. No one knows even today what gravity is. Now, that's interesting. That's a what question. And I like to tell people that I'm passionate about science, but it doesn't even deal with the what questions that you think it deals with. But to take a very simple analogy, here is water boiling, and we can ask, what's going on here? Well, why is the water boiling? Well, because the molecules are being agitated by the heat conducted through the kettle base, and that's why it's boiling. Okay, I can equally well say it's boiling because I want a cup of tea. Now, the interesting thing is what Dawkins and uh, Hawking, even more so actually it seemed to be, are saying you've got to choose between those two explanations, which are ridiculous. They lie in different categories. And I feel a huge amount of the so-called opposition between science and faith in God, and I'll come to that addendum in a moment, is because of this category difference, that it's a different class of questions that's being answered. And I put it to school kids, and I say, please choose between those two explanations of the water boiling. And they say, but sir, you need both. Why can't some brilliant scientists uh, see that? And by the way, if I might just add, I'm frequently asked to speak on science and faith. And I say to people, do you want me to talk about God? And they say, yes. Well, I said, where is it in the title? Faith. I said, but look, I can give you a lecture on science and faith without mentioning God, because faith is essential to science. Do you realize that your title is in itself an atheistic formulation? Because what they've cleverly done is to get across the idea that faith is a religious concept and it means believing where there's no evidence. Whereas faith is a normal concept and I only would take it seriously if it is based on evidence. And science, Einstein's wonderful quotation, I cannot imagine a genuine scientist without that faith. Not faith in God, but faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. All scientists are people of faith and they bring the faith to the science because you cannot do science unless you believe that it can be done, unless you believe that the human brain has some access to 
what we believe to be the real world out there. So I always am very careful. If you want to talk about science and faith, well, faith in God. But still, that's not a balanced thing because it's giving the impression that faith is all on the side of religion. And that is a category mistake of the worst kind to my mind. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the, the water boiling and uh, there's two ways to, to describe it. There's the scientific way yeah. to explain what the molecules the do way. and also the, the, the personal way, the purpose of water, the, why the water is boiling, yes. uh, which is because I want a cup of tea. So the two ways of describing reality are not conflicting, they're complementing they each, each other. And exactly. also you said uh, uh, even atheists have faith and scientists also uh, do, do science using faith. It's not only uh, theists. Uh, which is a very significant point, I think. And on that point, I want to say, uh, I think uh, that many, in our popular culture, many people will simply take someone's argument for, for granted just because they are a person of authority. So, oh, for yes. instance, uh, I saw uh, a very popular actor saying, um, well, there's no God. Uh, and the way to prove this, he said, if you take the Bible, and uh, destroy it, for instance, in a thousand years' time, you will never get anything like it. Uh, but if you get a book of science and destroy it in a thousand years' time, you will get the exact same book because it follows certain tests. And it seems to me that these claims are very, very easy to, to refute. Uh, but because they were made by someone in authority, uh, or someone like a scientist, for instance, yes. if we say like, uh, uh, Hawking, so who am I to disagree with Hawking uh, in this aspect? That's right. That's why I wrote my book about Hawking, because it had a trigger story. I ha had received a letter from a young man in Northern Ireland, where I self-evidently come from, and he wrote to me and said he was driving his car along the road and saw a hoarding saying, Stephen Hawking says there is no God. And he said it had a shock effect on him. He had to stop his car. And he thought to himself, well, if Stephen Hawking says there's no God, who am I to believe there is? And that's why I wrote my book, God and Stephen Hawking. Because I do not think Stephen Hawking actually understood enough of philosophy or religion. And in fact, that was interestingly enough said by another person who's not a theist, uh, Lord Rees, who's the Astronomer Royal, he said, I know Stephen very well and he knows little philosophy and no theology and I wouldn't listen to him on either of those two subjects. But because of this authority, and that's a huge question and it's a question for me because those of us who talk about these things, we're talking about subjects on this podcast that are not my main field. My main field is pure mathematics. So what right have I to talk about this? My answer to that is that if you go into a field that's outside your own professional expertise, you must consult the experts in that field. And I've tried to do that. I'm sure I failed to do it rigorously. But to give you a, an example of the opposite, and I'm afraid it's Dawkins again. He uh, points out in one of his books, I think it's a God delusion, that a good case can be made that Jesus never existed. Although he 
fair enough, he said he wouldn't make the case himself. Well, if he wouldn't, why mention it? And he quotes a certain professor, but I looked up this professor, and this was a professor of German. In other words, there was no ancient historian he consulted. And that, to my mind, is, is a cardinal error. And I try to be extremely careful to trace sources of real experts in the field I go into. And I approach things at the level of what one might call the public understanding of science. You mentioned that if you want to know about something, we would go to that's outside of our field of expertise, we'd ask the experts. Now, what about the lay Christian who can't understand, doesn't understand philosophy or theology, uh, but has faith in God? Um, they can't explain the ontological argument or uh, the argument from design, perhaps, but they still have faith in God. They, they can't quite um, argue, uh, make an, a case for, for Jesus or a case for God. So what do you say to people uh, who are not able to defend themselves um, in, with respect to their faith? So does that mean that because they don't have the evidence or are not able to point to the evidence, their faith is not valid? Of course not. You don't have to understand electricity to have to be able to trust it and use it. I, I think the important thing here is not everyone is called upon to be, in that sense, an intellectual defender of the faith. And there must have been many uh, Christians in the early church who were very grateful that people like Paul existed because he was the defender. That's the first side of it. But there's another side to it that Explanation and argument are extremely important. Jesus argued. But when it comes to the defense of the faith, we often use the sorry word, apologetics, for that. I, I say sorry because transliteration from one language to another can be a dangerous thing. And that is exactly what's happened with the Greek word apologia, which simply means defense. It's now become... Uh, an elitist topic for clever Christians and a, a sort of subdivision of philosophy 101. But apologia is defending, and I find it very interesting that in most of the occasions it's used in the New Testament, and they are by Paul, or in that context, by Luke describing Paul. His first line of defense is his experience mm -hmm. of meeting the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Now, it seems to me that, therefore, evidence splits into two rough categories, although there are grey edges between them, and they are the objective and the subjective, that some of us have been taught how to argue philosophically and so on, and that's very important. But that would be valueless in itself when it comes to God as person and Christ as person and Christianity as a personal relationship if we had no personal experience. So it seems to me that there are several, in that sense, categories of evidence. There's the evidence from the natural world. There's the evidence from logic, argument, and philosophy. But then there's the evidence from experience, from psychology, and finally, and very importantly, from history. And putting all those things together, I see it as a cumulative thing. But 
I would want to say that we haven't necessarily, and this is a wild generalization, we haven't in the Christian church done a good job of teaching people to answer questions because, you know, uh, you say Christians don't know how to defend it, but if they've had an education of any kind and they're living in a pluralistic, complex world, they're going to be faced with questions. I think that's a very significant point you're raising. I think uh, this is a, a major uh, uh, point in, in Christianity in general, the fact that some people would say, would argue that uh, Christians don't need to defend their faith. Uh, they just, because faith is believing in something that you, you cannot see. Um, and absurd. of course, many, many atheists would, would argue that all faith is blind faith. Yeah. And some would say, uh, well, why study the evidence? Why look at the evidence? Uh, because that somehow would probably make you doubt uh, uh, the existence of God as a Christian. Yes. What is your take on that? Oh, well, uh, well <coughs> my initial reaction is to say it's, it's very superficial thinking because if you go in to try to get a mortgage for a house, mm. you'd better bring some evidence that you've got collateral to support your payments. And people all understand that. Indeed, the notion that faith is blind is a complete invention, that all faith is blind, is a complete invention of the so-called new atheists. Well, they're old now because faith is an ordinary word from the Latin fides, from which we derive fidelity and <coughs> trust and the cognate words in most of the languages that are involved in the New Testament are words that lead us to think, you look at the OED on faith and they will talk about evidence-based commitment or belief and trust. And we all know what that means, especially after the financial crisis, where we thought we could trust the bankers. And until evidence came back, it, it froze the entire market. I find on inquiry that people know what evidence-based faith is. And the difficulty is it's a total intellectual cop-out for atheists, and I have know quite a few of them here in Oxford, who keep insisting that faith is a religious word and means believing where there's no evidence because that actually absolves them from actually seriously considering any evidence, which I naturally want them to do. And I think we need to help Christians. I do believe that the average Christian can be taught without having a scientific or humanities education to any high level just common sense arguments that they can use to break through a lot of this stuff. And I do feel our churches ought to take more responsibility for doing it, especially dealing with this kind of argument from the pulpit and not simply, and of course there are many churches that already do this, but there's a danger of confining Christianity to the devotional rather than having an intellectual dimension. When all these people go out to work, they have an intellectual dimension to their work, especially if they're professionals. 
you, t you touched upon this very uh, briefly just now on objective truth and subjective yes. truth, and which, which leads us to, to this concept of uh, moral relativity. Yes. Now, many people would argue that if, you, if you're making statements about uh, God, for instance, um, then that's just your opinion. So if you say that there is a God, you, you can't really uh, say that that's an objective truth. Uh, that's just your opinion. I have a friend who says people only take that postmodern relativist view in areas that they think are not important. That's aside from the fact that I know that postmodern is a category mm. within art, and I leave that aside. But this idea of moral relativity and truth relativity, people don't live like it because they can't live like it. And I think there again, it's important to get across to people that they do believe in truth uh, to a very large extent, otherwise life would be utterly impossible. So this idea that we've shifted from the pre-modern to the modern to the post-modern in terms of chronology, I think is false. We can have all three in the same person, let alone in the same age. Let's move on and talk about um, how the universe came to be and the Big Bang. Uh, because obviously you're, you're a ma mathematician and a scientist. Um, what is the Big Bang and what might have been there before the Big Bang if we can contemplate uh, the existence of time and whether something else existed mm -hmm. before time was created? Well, the Big Bang's a label on a mystery. The term was coined as a joke by Professor right. Sir Fred Hoyle, whom I met on several occasions to discuss these things, because he didn't like the idea of a start to the universe. And it simply means the universe started. And it's important to emphasize that, because I, I meet a number of Christians, and really they ought to know better, who are worried about that expression. Um, it's simply saying there was a beginning, which is wonderful, because that's exactly what the Bible has been claiming for many millennia, which in itself is an interesting thing. I'm old enough to have lived through the 1960s, and I remember in the 1960s when the most powerful evidence to date came in that there was a beginning to space-time, which was then labelled uh, the Big Bang. And interestingly enough, that idea had been suggested in the 1930s by a Belgian priest called Georges Lemaitre. And the fascinating thing in England was that this idea that there was a beginning was resisted at the highest levels of the scientific establishment. John Maddox was the editor at that time of Nature, and he said we mustn't go down that road because, and this is a partial quote, it gives too much leverage to those who believe in creation. And I was at a conference not so long ago with very distinguished philosophers, mathematicians, and physicists, and I was the token Christian, or one of them, who was asked to talk about this, asked your question, you see, and I quoted, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I was interrupted, heckled from the audience by a very leading professor of physics who said, Professor Lennox, I hope that you're joking. 
when you suggest that the Bible has anything to say to us in the 21st century. And there was dead silence. <laughs> oh, I said, with a smile, I said, no, I'm not joking at all. I said, actually, I would like to suggest to you that if, you, if science hadn't been so imprisoned by Aristotle's ideas of the eternity of the universe and time, yeah. and time, that you might have taken another worldview more seriously, and that is the biblical one that's been saying for thousands of years that there was a beginning. And if you'd taken that worldview seriously, you might have looked for evidence and found it earlier than you did. I said, of course, uh, scripture is pre-scientific by definition in terms of chronology, but it's not pre-scientific in that it is not discussing the universe that you study. And although it doesn't say much about how God created, what it does say is of profound significance, particularly in the digital age, because it tells us, to put it in contemporary language from linguistics, that the universe was created not by unguided natural processes, but by a series of speech acts and God said. And I said, in the digital age, that's fascinating. And one leading astronomer said to me, how did they get that right? <laughs> it's very interesting that you, you mentioned the speech act uh, theory of uh, John Austin. Um, you also mentioned that somehow the Big Bang gives leverage to Christianity and uh, also su supports the, the idea that there was a beginning, uh, that the universe might have come into being um, at one point in the past. Now, many atheists, the corollary of this is that many atheists would argue on the other hand that Christians have changed their views based on the evidence of scientific discoveries. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, following Darwin and uh, evolution theories, there are Christians who believe that actually we evolved uh, and uh, believe some, some sort of uh, version of the, of the evolution theory. What is your answer to that? Well, there are two or three separate questions there, Samuel. Let's take the first one first. Do we use science in understanding scripture? Of course we do. Here's a simple example. When Jesus said, I am the door, how do we know he wasn't saying he was made of wood or steel or plastic? Well, because we know about physical doors. We know something about, in that broad sense, science and technology. We can't avoid understanding words in scripture without having the reference of the surrounding nature around us. So saying that we can't use science is absurd. We're already doing so. Secondly, I would say that one of the very interesting things is this. I look at science and at scripture, and we must be careful to talk about the current state of science. In other words, the current state of science appears to me to be teaching that there was a beginning. That correlates with scripture. I'm not saying that science won't change, or indeed interpretation of scripture won't change. But to bore a bit 
deeper into the, the question. The notion, and it's possibly simpler to deal with it, you mentioned uh, Darwinian evolution. Now, in every age, there will be Christians who will go overboard, as I see it, on the scientific side. Let me give you a simpler example, which is the one I use in my book on, on Hawking, and that is this. There is a controversy among some Christians about how old the earth is, for example, even before you come to the question of evolution. And that was a controversy, has been a controversy this in the last century, largely. But at the time of Galileo, the controversy wasn't anything to do with the age of the earth, but it was to do with the motion of the earth. Now, this is a very interesting case in point. Galileo was a brilliant thinker, and he challenged a familiar notion, which was fundamentally Aristotelian. And the interesting thing is, often people think that it was Galileo versus the Catholic Church, in other words, in their eyes, the Christian Church. So the Christian Church was obscurantist and claimed the earth didn't move. Why did it claim the earth didn't move? Because the Bible said so. Quote, one of the Psalms, God has set the earth upon its pillars so that it cannot be moved. In fact, that's uh, one of the books of Samuel, I think, has that in it. So what is rarely realized is that it wasn't only the Catholic Church teaching that apparently from Scripture. It was that the philosophers who were the first to challenge Galileo, they accepted Aristotle. So Earth was at the center, motionless, and everything else rotated uh, around it. And the, the interesting th thing was there that it was the philosophers first opposed Galileo. And then the church had stepped onto the Aristotelian bandwagon because they thought the Bible supported it. Now, I often speak to to audiences and it's quite amusing because I, I, uh, they asked me about evolution and this question of going with science and so on and we must never use science to uh, understand scripture and I say how many of you in this room believe the earth is fixed in space? Not a hand goes up. I said, but the Bible says it is fixed in space so you don't believe the Bible clearly and there's huge embarrassment often and I said, but just a moment, what we've realized is over the centuries, and it took a long time, Galileo was probably the first moving earther and everybody else was a fixed earther. But over time, people began to see that although, and I'm wording this very carefully, you could interpret scripture as saying that the earth was fixed. You didn't have to. You could say that this is referring at a deeper level, not to geometric and motion fixity, but to stability. And the earth is stable and it will go on. And so none of you believe the earth physically moves, although that's a possible interpretation of scripture. And I make the point in my book in some detail that you could argue from scripture that the earth is young and therefore there's no time for any evolution, for example. But there are other ways of understanding it, that these speech acts that I referred to are separated in time. Now, the matter of evolution 
is a huge thing that could occupy us for hours. I'll just make two points. One, there are two issues here. The first is, can you logically deduce atheism from biology? And that clearly is false, because there are many people, as you say, who accept evolution at different levels and believe in God. So the first thing is, can you logically deduce a worldview, atheism, from a biological theorem? The answer to that is no, because that's another category mistake. But then the second question, which is a scientific question, is does the Darwinian, neo-Darwinian synthesis, or the modern synthesis, as it's called these days, bear all the weight that's put on it? And I'm not a biologist, but what I find absolutely fascinating is that the theory, the neo-Darwinian theory, is now under attack as never before, which is why I wrote my latest book that you mentioned, Cosmic Chemistry, Do God and Science Mix, to point out that within the scientific establishment, among people who are still looking for a naturalistic solution, they are saying, not that Darwinism must be refined, but it must be replaced. Why? And I think that I understand correctly that the real problem brings us straight back to the speech acts, is that the different levels of informational uh, dimension to all the levels in biology from the human genome to epigenetics and all that kind of thing are just way outside the capacity of simple things like mutation and natural selection to produce. So I'm fascinated by this, sitting on the outside and, and watching in. I think mathematicians have got, I must confess to you, a serious track record right from the early days of doubting the Darwinian mechanism. But now the scientific reasons are coming in. And I think we need to be open to the fact, and this is now the major issue, and that is the worldview one, that there are two ways of looking at the question of the universe. They're top-down and bottom-up is the crude way of putting it. Either the universe, the mass energy, or nothing, quantum vacuum is the basic thing and everything is derived from it, including mind and the idea of God because there isn't a God. Or there's both top down and bottom up that God caused the universe to be. Now, you hinted at a question a little bit earlier, which I will address now. The cause behind the universe existing. One of the most interesting things from a linguistic perspective, I find, is the statement at the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, that is, the Word already was. This, to my mind, is a clear existence statement. The ancient Greeks were very interested in two categories, things that are eternal and things that came to be. Now translations obscure this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word already was. He never came to be. But just a verse or two later it says, all things, now frequently the contemporary translations say all things were made by him. But actually the Greek text says all things came to be through him. So there is that apposition. 
all things came to be through the Word who is God. Now, that is fascinating to my mind, that this is saying that the prime reality is God and God is spirit. He caused everything to be even though he himself didn't come to be. And, and therefore the atheistic worldview is the bottom-up one. The Christian worldview is the exact opposite. And what fascinates me about the contemporary developments in science is the realization that information is coming rapidly to be regarded as a fundamental quantity or quality that cannot be derived from matter and energy. Now, if that's the case, as I believe it to be, you cannot get meaning from material process. That's the end of materialism straight away from within science, without even going to theology. Some argue you can't, you can't get to consciousness from a material process. Well, that as well. Nobody knows what consciousness is. Going back to your first point uh, on Galileo, I think that was a significant point you raised there. So Galileo, you're saying Galileo, uh, didn't just go against the church. He went against all of science as well, against Aristotle's yes. uh, view. Uh, of, uh, of the world as well and his cosmology. And sometimes science, it seems, doesn't always get it right. So Aristotle, <laughs> for instance, said, um, if you throw a big ball into the yeah, air, that's right. um, it will fall very quickly. If, if you throw it into the air, it will fall very quickly, much quicker than if you, throw, if you threw a small ball. Yes, yes. Now, science has proven that, uh, and we know as a fact that that's not true. Um, so. Uh, it seems that science isn't always irrefutable no. and sometimes correct, correct itself. And uh, it's, I want to, to raise this point about the Big Bang. Um, there are uh, scientists and mathematicians like Sir Roger Penrose who say before the universe there might have been something else like energy. Yeah. And there, there is a body of research now <coughs> excuse me, saying that the Big Bang might, have not, might not have been the very initial point mm -hmm. Uh, when the universe was created and that it was created by something else. Uh, what is your, your take on that? Do we go back to the Aristotelian view of uh, the I, universe? I doubt it very much. Now, I'm not a cosmologist. I read as much cosmology as I can. What I understand is that there's a fundamental theorem <coughs> that was proved not so long ago by Alan Guth and uh, another man from originally Ukraine called uh, Vilenkin, and I've met both of them, who believe from a mathematical perspective that there was a beginning, even if you introduce a kind of multiverse theory. In other words, there was a singularity and that you don't go infinitely backwards. And in that sense, there's been a series of speculations that some of them fit with the biblical view, some of them do not. Science changes. And the very difficult thing in this area is the matter of evidence. For example, Martin Rees, our major cosmologist, astronomer royal, he likes the multiverse theory. So did Hawking. But then the man that taught me quantum mechanics, Sir John Polkinghorne at Cambridge, he says, no, 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 because these other universes 
there's no access to them. We have no evidence that they exist. I think the jury's out, which is why I said earlier, before you asked me that question, science can change. I would still maintain that a substantial part of modern cosmology fits with the idea that there was a beginning. Now, the Bible gives us relatively little information. It gives us enough, it seems to me, to indicate this is highly sophisticated writing, Genesis 1, that's another topic, but also that behind it lies a huge amount of stuff we know nothing about. One very striking feature is this, the creation story occupies very much less than the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. And that gives us an idea of proportion. God wants us to know something. He hasn't told us everything. And that may be for a reason that the Bible itself tells us. Interestingly enough, biology of all subjects was started by God, according to the Genesis text. He told the first humans to go and name the animals. Now, taxonomy is the fundamental intellectual discipline, naming things. And you being a linguistics expert will know that far better than I do. And that has always fascinated me because in the text of Genesis 1, God names two or three bits of the universe. That is very significant. In light of the fact that he later says, you go and name the rest of it. And so there's that mandate to do science, which is confirmed in the famous statement from the Psalms that stands above the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge. Great are the works of the Lord and searched out by those who take delight in them. Still there today, both in Latin and in English. That's very interesting. <clears throat> you mentioned that science, um, <clears throat> again, there are many mysteries that science can't explain uh, in terms of how the universe came to be. One of them is dimensions. Um, there's a, a famous physicist, New York physicist Michio Kaku, mm -hmm. claiming that uh, there is a possibility that there are other dimensions oh, sure. in the universe. He, he, he's saying <coughs> around 11 mm -hmm. uh, different dimensions. That's string theory. As the string theory. The string theory. And he's saying uh, if you look at a fish in a pond, um, the fish has limited vision and wouldn't see you uh, as a human being. Uh, uh, above, looking at the fish. The, the fish only sees sideways and uh, understands or has some understanding that there is something uh, above water, although the fish might not even see water itself. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a divide there. Um, and the, the air and all of this reality, this new dimension that the fish doesn't see, uh, is all around him. Might there be another dimension uh, that we're not aware of. And I think the Bible hints to this actually uh, when it, when it uh, because it gives us the, the baby in the womb met metaphor. The baby in the womb doesn't understand that there might be something else mm. like air outside of the womb. Uh, there might be a whole new world waiting for him to develop. And that's actually us. Uh, might, might it be the case that there is another dimension after death Oh, I would that. go further than that. I would say that there is another dimension. You know, I owe a great deal to the late C.S. Lewis. 
And he was brilliant, I think, although he was not a mathematician, he claimed he was a good geometer. And he used the mathematical notion of dimensionality and geometric dimensions to illustrate this kind of thing. And he used a very famous satire, uh, Flatland, to illustrate this. That if you live in a world of two dimensions on paper, say, you would not be aware of anything above or below you. And if there is such a thing as a third dimension in which a sphere exists and the sphere passed through your world, you would experience it first as a point and then a little circle, a bigger circle, and growing bigger, and then it would get smaller and smaller and disappear. And I think this is a superbly good analogy uh, to help understand that. We are used to uh, our four dimensions, three dimensions of space and one of time, and the relationship between those is a, a matter that's much discussed by philosophers and, and physicists. And then we get uh, string theory that introduces many more dimensions. Now mathematicians as such are very used to having multiple dimensions uh, in their thinking because they apply in all sorts of different areas of life and I'm not going to go into that. But what is very interesting about this idea that there is nature and there's supernature. And C.S. Lewis was always constantly going on about that, that humans have a sense that there's something else, there's something other. And he makes the point that we find certain appetites in our persons as human beings and be very surprising if those appetites existed without some objective satisfaction for them in the world. And he said, if we find ourselves longing for another world, it may be that we were made for another one that actually exists. And I think quite a bit of the Gospels and the New Testament in particular are arguing that there is what we might term a supernature. And Christ claimed to come from above. Now, he wasn't merely talking geometrically, although the geometrical movement was in itself an indicator that there was another reality beyond. There is another world. And I feel it's one of the most important things to say and what I discover in contemporary society, particularly among some of my very bright friends, is a growing sense that there must be something more. Ian McGilchrist is a very interesting writer. You probably have come across him with his recent, absolutely incredible magisterial work, The Matter With Things. And McGilchrist is not a theist, at least not in any conventional sense. He's a polymath of the first order, actually. And as a neuroscientist, he tells us that his research in the brain is telling us that what we've done over the past centuries is neglect the right side of the brain that looks for meaning and concentrate on the left side of the brain. That's the logic, science side, etc., etc. But in his major book, which is nearly 2,000 pages and 200 pages of references, which is being hailed as one of the most important books in the last 
200 years. I mean, this is, I've read quite a lot of it. He writes a very interesting chapter as a non-theist on space for the sacred. And he says, we must reserve space for the sacred. We must talk about God. And his book is really a strong anti-reductionist, anti-materialist argument from neuroscience, left brain, that there's something more. Now, he lands up, not surprisingly, in what he calls the panentheist position, that everything's in God and so on, which is just a step removed from pantheism. And you can understand it if you are moving from a position where the left side of the brain has been overemphasized. I want to say that he's not going far enough, that there's evidence to show that there is something more, and that something more is not vague, but it has revealed itself to us. And that's where the category of revelation becomes very important indeed in the modern discussion. So you're saying that nature has some clues. Yes. There are some clues that we can find in nature, and actually scientists point to these, that these, these uh, signs hint to a different reality of something else, something above us. Uh, and it was Francis Bacon that said, God left us two books. That's correct. The Bible and nature. Yes, and I think one of the biggest hints is lies in the concept of a written book. Uh, you know, when the human genome was classified and written out, uh, Francis Collins was it. Uh, today we can reveal the, the book that hitherto has, uh, has just been known to God. I think one of the most compelling evidences from the intellectual world, so to speak, for me, that there is something more, and that something is intelligent, lies in the fact that all human beings, when they see signs, symbols, marks that carry meaning, immediately infer, not downwards to material processes alone, but upwards to a mind. All you have to see is the four-letter word exit above a door to know that whatever materials are used and material processes are used, robotically created or whatever, there's a mind behind it because that word has meaning because you've independently learned a little bit of Latin. And that, to my mind, is the vastly important thing. And I find it ironic, and I've talked to people about it again and again, that my scientific friends will admit that argument admit it clearly. I, I often use the illustration of a, a menu, and I've done the experiment many times with many scientists who claim to be reductionist, that there's only material. And I say, okay, look at this menu, roast chicken, R-O-A-S-T, five letters. How do you know it's roast chicken? And they tell me, well, it's English. I, I've learned the language. It, it means roast chicken. And you are a reductionist, yes. Okay, you explain to me how those marks on paper with ink carry a semantic dimension. It's the arbitrary linguistic sign. Yeah, and just use the physics and chemistry yeah. of the paper and ink to explain it to me. And I remember the first one I tried that on, he said, I can't do it. 
And he said, for 40 years, I've come into my lab in Oxford thinking that that could be done, and it can't. And I was so amazed that I said, look, uh, science has only been going seriously for four or five hundred years. He said, it doesn't matter. The meaning must imply a mind. And then he told me he studied DNA. And I said, what's the origin of this long word, which is has a semantic dimension because it codes for proteins? Oh, he said, chance and necessity. I said, but look, you've just told me that a five-letter word requires a mind. Why doesn't a, a 3.4 billion letter word require a mind? Well, he'd no answer to that. And I think that's one of the important ways in which God has written into each of the 10 trillion or so cells of our bodies this huge database that's screaming at us, in the beginning was the word. You mentioned the human genome and the DNA and hinted to the argument from design and uh, the fine-tuning argument. Now, it seems to me that these are the strongest arguments one can make uh, for theism. Mm -hmm. Why is it that scientists and atheists re reject these? Well, because the whole issue is not purely intellectual. You're right that they're powerful arguments. Uh, I have debated a philosopher here in Oxford who's an outspoken atheist, delightful man, and he invited me to lecture his students and talk to them about God. And he said, by the way, I hope you're going to use the very best argument against atheism that there is. And I said, well, if you tell me what it is, I'd use it. He said, fine tuning. If ever I were to become a believer, he said, it would be that. There are a few skeptics about the fine tuning, but the interesting thing is they're faced with it. Hawking was faced with it, and they realized that it demands an explanation. And their problem is, if they do not want there to be God as a solution, then they're forced to look at extremely speculative solutions in terms of multiverses and all this kind of thing. Now, why would someone not want there to be a God? There are several scientists today who explicitly say that. That's a moral position. And the problem with the God question is that even the mention of God disturbs some people because it raises scary questions. If there is a God, am I accountable? And wasn't it one of the Huxleys who said, what a marvelous thing it was when I, the day I discovered there was no God, I could essentially live as I liked. We got to bring that into play. If the biblical analysis is correct, which I believe it to be, human beings are not only intellectual beings, they're moral beings, and they're in revolt against God. And that is why people are prepared to use the most shoddy and pathetic arguments, intellectual arguments, to put up a smokescreen against God. Now, of course, I believe there are genuine intellectual arguments and we must try to address them. But I've discovered very often in life, talking to individuals, which is where you learn this, that there's a much deeper seated thing, that maybe they've had a very bad experience with some professing church member or Christian. Maybe they suffered a loss. Yes, or suffered major loss. And there's that 
there's the rebellion point of view, and perhaps that's what you were saying. The other really big reason that people bring, and I can understand this, is the problem of suffering and evil, which is evil. The, the hard question. And that's a topic on which concerns me a lot, because that's the hardest question that not only I as a Christian face, but that any worldview faces. But dealing with that would take quite a bit of time. Now, we talked about truth, about science, the beginning of the universe, and arguments for the existence of God. But it seems to me that this wave of new atheism is probably not as significant now as it was 15, 10, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, so it seems to me that it's drying out. And in this secular society, it feels to me that there's a different something else coming on uh, in which people look at religion differently. Uh, so you have secular historians like Tom Holland, for instance, mm -hmm. who argue that not only uh, European values have Christian roots, but there's also some value in Christianity itself. Mm. And there are, there are other uh, intellectuals and secular thinkers that see, appreciate the value of Christianity. So what do you think is coming and how do you think Christians should equip themselves? Well, there's a mass of material in there that's important. First of all, I think you're right in that there's been a change. The new atheists have lost their grip, but partly because of their aggressive attitude. I still find that the science-god debate is very, very much um, off the moment, particularly among students and young people. It's hugely important, but what has happened is that the meaning questions, who am I, are moving into center stage. Now, there are a lot of dimensions to this. Charles Taylor wrote a book some time ago called The, the Secular, Secular Age. Age, and he pointed out what is clearly the case, that what has happened for various reasons is that you get Christianity pushed and religion in general to the margins of the culture. Then you get a reaction from believers themselves that they move into a private space and live in a private space and discover that they're in a new kind of world. The new kind of world is a world where Christianity is only one option among many other options. And uh, I, my reaction to that is this is exactly the position that the early Christians were in. They were a very minor group, a minority worldview, and yet they didn't disappear, as the secularization thesis so-called predicted, and we're still here. And there's a multiple of things here that we do need to get to know what our fellow citizens believe. I'm very fortunate I was taught to do that as a teenager. I didn't have to wait for adulthood to, to find out other worldviews. And I think it's very important to learn about other worldviews and other religions so that we can test what we believe. Uh, we started with truth, that 
Christianity is the truth, and that is my passion. It's not that I find it helpful. I do, of course. I find it very challenging and sometimes painful from time to time. But the fundamental conviction that lies at the heart of my whole life is that Christianity is true, and therefore it must go into the marketplace and defend itself. And that's hugely important in terms of its intellectual credibility and in terms of its moral effects and spiritual effects. And that it brings meaning into people's lives. And it's no accident to my mind that all over the world universities are beginning to develop courses on the good life what it means to have a life that's thriving. What does human thriving mean? These are very important things for a Christian to address. And they have moved a bit away from the purely cerebral science religion debate. You're absolutely right there. I'm not a prophet, so what's going to happen in 70 years, I don't know. You mention AI. Now, that's another topic for a podcast, really, because I've written about it, and I think there are hugely important, not only technological issues, but they affect one of the biggest questions that we can ever ask is, what is a human being? And they raise very deep ethical questions, particularly in light of the idea that we'll be able to transform ourselves into transhuman creatures and what's coming out of the Institute for the Future of Humanity here, the so-called long-termism, that we ought to invest the money in the intelligent, wealthy, essentially Western part of the world and forget the rest, which is absolutely horrific because it devalues humans. We're into a new ball game completely, Samuel. John, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Well, let me tell you, for your encouragement, that's one of the best interviews I've ever done. I'm very glad to hear. Excellent. I'm very glad to And hear. I'd be very happy to do more. I would love to do another one. Yes, well, there you are. Thank you.